So good evening. Tonight I wanted to begin um, talking about a topic that's near and dear to my heart, and I thought we might even take a some extended period to go through it. So I don't know how long that is, but it's like more than one. So um, the topic is the the five spiritual faculties, which are it's one of those lists in the teachings. But these are particular qualities of mind that are very relevant for our development. And what's great about them is that we all have all of them already. They're considered to be natural qualities of the human mind that can be developed and tuned in certain ways that uh, are very supportive of awakening. And also, it comes from, from looking at the world in a certain way. So for example, uh, I look out into the world And I see that there are people who are making poor choices, who are not living for their welfare, the welfare of others, and the welfare of both, which is one of the definitions of wisdom, actually, is to be able to live well for our benefit, the benefit of others, and both. And, you know, it tugs at my heart that I see that not happening in some cases. And of course, we know personally that we don't always live up to that, but I mean in large ways out in the world. So then we can do a little bit of investigation on that. Why is it that, you know, that these so hard to make choices that are for the welfare of people and, and beings and the earth? And we might say, well, that's because Somehow people aren't seeing very clearly, are not really focused on, on that. This is a quality of concentration that allows us to see things as they are and to understand what is arising and what it's dependent on and how that can evolve. It's concentration that helps us to see clearly, you know, a one-pointedness, a collectedness of mind. And why don't we have that? Well, essentially it comes from not paying very good attention. We're distracted. We have our phones. We have our emotional reactivities, our identifications and image to hold up, the troubles in our relationships. All these overwhelm us to the point where we're not really able to be mindful and simply pay attention and therefore see how things are, and therefore make good choices. And why is it that we're not able to pay attention? Well, it has something to do with our energy, and the scatteredness of our energy, certainly, but in some ways, um, we, don't, we don't really put forth the effort sometimes to pay attention because we're just going along with our life, doing this, doing that, doing our habits, a little lazy about wanting to really do something different. 
there may not be that engagement, vibrancy, energy in our life, and engagement with our mind. And why is it that we might not be putting forth that energy, gathering ourselves up in that way in order to pay attention? Well, we may not know that there is an alternative. We may not believe that it will have any effect. We may not know that real happiness comes from our inner life. So this is a challenge actually with trust, with confidence, with faith. These are the five faculties. Faith, effort, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. They're very crucial qualities. And what they're associated with in the teachings actually is learning a skill that these are the things that come forth as we decide that we're going to learn how to do something well, whether it's living well or relating well or going for liberation, whatever we're doing, these qualities will be needed. They're ordinary qualities of mind, actually, uh, even though they have kind of fancy-sounding names. In, In basic form, they exist in all human minds and hearts, but they're not necessarily spiritually directed. We can direct any of those qualities to something that's not necessarily wholesome, that doesn't really necessarily serve our deepest aims. But when they are directed and developed in that way, they become very, very powerful and some of our best allies. So I think this is good news, that we already have everything we need to walk the path. And it's really just a matter of appreciating and recognizing and, and developing So then tonight I want to talk a bit about this first quality of faith. Or, if that's a somewhat fraught word, um, confidence, trust, conviction, I've also heard. Choose the one that works. Faith comes in a number of forms and evolves throughout our practice, but often the The first spark of it in our spiritual life is termed bright faith. And it's a very beautiful moment when we kind of awaken to this idea, oh, maybe there's a better way to live. Maybe there's some other possibility. This is from Rodney Smith, his book, Touching the Infinite. The first moment of our spiritual journey may begin with a glimpse of a possibility that offers relief from all this stress. We hear a talk, read a book, or deeply sense something that suggests there could be a different way to live. This touch calls us from beyond toward a mystery that reprioritizes everything and provides a context for our struggles. This calling does not fit neatly within our conventional lives, but we cannot shake it off. A spark has been ignited, but we are not sure what to do about it. So that's that feeling that you may recognize. And it's also important to understand that faith, even at this early bright faith level, is not really belief. 
it's not really that we're just sort of throwing caution to the wind and throwing out our rational mind. It has a, it's a little more subtle than that. This is from Adyashanti. Faith is not a belief in something you don't know to be true. It's moving on in the face of the unknown, or letting go in the face of the unknown. In the face of something you don't know, don't understand, can't comprehend, it's moving in that direction, moving into it anyway. Or a paraphrase of St. John, One dark night, fired by love's urgent longings, I went out by the secret ladder, unseen. And so something begins. Something begins to move in us in some way. So another aspect of faith is developed in a, a story in the suttas, the story of a disciple named General Siha. Now, Siha means lion. So this is General Lion. And you know, he's a sort of a powerful um, leader figure. Uh, he was actually originally a follower of the Jains, but he became a lay follower of the Buddha after an interesting conversation with him in which the Buddha answered some of his questions and displayed quite a lot of humility. And he was impressed, actually, by the display of humility. And so um, Siha converts and becomes follower of the Buddha. And sometime later, he asks the Buddha, what fruits of giving are visible in this very life? So he didn't really want to just accept that there would be some result later. He said, if I'm, because he's a wealthy, powerful guy, he gives a lot of donations. He says, I want to, what, what can I see right now from this giving? And so the Buddha gives him four benefits that are visible here and now of giving. And the, the word actually used for visible here and now is uh, sanditika, or sanditiko, which is also one of the six qualities of the Dhamma. There are six we won't go through them, but there are six kind of praised qualities of the Dharma, and one of them is that it's visible here and now. It's something that happens right now. We don't have to wait. We let go in this moment. The peace from that happens in this moment at the same time, even though there are, of course, fruits later. So he offers him four benefits, visible here and now, of giving. Number one, Donors, which he also calls munificent givers, are dear and agreeable to many people. So giving makes friends. Number two, good people resort to a donor. So you become a, a refuge for others. They want to come to you. You can help. A donor acquires a good reputation. This is a good thing in a community. Not a good reputation like you were you know, sort of making yourself up and marketing yourself well and presenting all your positive attributes on Facebook, but you know that you actually genuinely have a good reputation for being a good person, and other people recognize that. And then the fourth one's interesting, which is that when a donor approaches a group, whether it's a group of kings or warriors or 
merchants or anybody really, they do so confidently and composed. Um, and another teacher translated that as confident and not crestfallen. So there's a sense of inner strength that comes from being a donor or being a giver, even if one is not wealthy, that um, helps one in moving through the world in some way. And then as a bonus, the Buddha does add uh, one benefit that comes later. And he says that being a donor after death, on the breakup of the body, uh, you go to a good destination. So he offers a good rebirth if you want to wait for that. (laughs) And Siha replies in an interesting way to this. He says, um, Blante, I do not go by faith in the Blessed One concerning these four directly visible fruits of giving declared by him. For I am a donor, a munificent giver, and I have experienced these four for myself. But when the Blessed One tells me that after the breakup of the body there will be a good destination, I do not know this, and so I go by faith in the Blessed One. So... He's saying that uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't need faith in those first four. He sort of just got confirmation, you know, is that he's already experienced these things. And so he says, I don't need to go by faith in you. I know this to be true. But this last one, I don't know. I haven't died yet. And so he, um, he declares that because of his faith in the Buddha, he will believe that one also. So Siha had faith in the actual Buddha, which I imagine must have been pretty easy when you were in the presence of the living Buddha, no problem. But what about for us, um, not having a living Buddha? Actually, the suttas talk about um, having faith in the Buddha's enlightenment. They're pretty clear that uh, now that we are into the realm of following the teachings from the being passed down through the suttas and not directly from the Buddha, um, that what we have faith in is his enlightenment. So we have, at some sense, at our heart level, a sense that freedom is possible. And we believe that somebody did it, basically, a human being. And this is similar to that, you know, what Rodney Smith and Anushanti were talking about, just this sense of there's a possibility here for me. Whether you really conceptualize that as, okay, the Buddha was a person, I believe in his enlightenment, that's, you know, therefore, you know, kind of make a syllogism, therefore, I'm human too, I can do it. And it doesn't have to be that logical, but just a sense. Isn't there something, some way in which our humanity could really be developed to its full potential? Some spark in us. So we might have faith in that. I think there's also quite a connection between faith and joy. So we need to have kind of a positive basis for our our faith or our trust. And so we can ask ourselves, you know, what is it that I do each day to nourish some kind of joyful faith in myself or confidence in the practice or even just interest or willingness? Sometimes we're at the level of, am I willing to practice today? That's actually a form of faith, any form of willingness. When I was in Sri Lanka near the end of last year, 
I really could feel there that they have a much more faith-based approach than we do. It's just natural because it's a uh, it's a largely Buddhist country, and it's had Buddhism in it for a long time. It came directly from India, uh, you know, sort of. It was the first stop, basically, as Buddhism was traveling out, and um, and so there's this this long history and woven into the culture, and it still persists, even though I'm sure they're practicing differently than a couple thousand years ago. But I found it quite delightful. You know, there was something I could feel there uh, at a very visceral level. For example. Um, I was staying at a monastery, and there was a, the retreat center that we were at was right next door to the monastery, uh, and we were sitting retreat there. And so the, uh, the monks from the monastery would actually come to the retreat center to get their meal, because that's where the big kitchen was. And so all the monks would come every day at, I think it was 10 o'clock, they would all file down the hill from the monastery and come out in a row, you know, in the order from the most senior to the most junior monk, and then the white-clad Anagarikas at the end. It was really sweet, and they would all file down very solemnly and walk through the dining room area and receive their food, and you'd see they sort of disappear into the building, and then five minutes later they'd come out and go back up the hill in their line. And it was very sweet in that uh, the retreatants were just doing their sitting and walking practice, and there happened to be a walking period during that 10 a.m. time. And it was sort of a, a tradition that a fair number of the yogis would stop walking and stand and watch the, the monks go by. And it was, um, it was just kind of part of the practice is that you would sort of, you would stop what you were doing and observe that, be mindful of that happening. And one time, uh, I was standing there near another uh, Sri Lankan woman, and we were supposed to be in silent retreat, but she turned to me and said in English, it's so nice <laughs> just to see these monks filing by. She said, it's so nice. And it was just this, the way she said it was so sweet. You know, here we are, we're watching this 2,500-year-old tradition um, unfolding before us, and then, you know, it's over in f- 10 minutes, and go back to walking. But it was very uh, nourishing, I think, to be in that kind of atmosphere. There was also a little ritual um, before the Dharma talk uh, where there was a little dialogue between the monk teaching the retreat and the retreatants. It was very formalized, such to the point it it was printed in our little yogi booklet. And so if you didn't remember it, you could follow along in the booklet. But it was a little ritual of where um, you know, we would say, oh, please give us the teachings, and you would say, yes, um, you know, may you be well, and then um, the yogis would say, please forgive us for anything, and please partake of any merit that we've made. The monk would say, thank you, I partake of your merit, and then the yogis would say, may we partake of your merit, <laughs> and the monk would say, yes, please partake of my merit, oh, thank you. And it was, you know, it only took two or three minutes, um, but also very sweet, just to, to, sh- to acknowledge that we're sharing in each other's merit in the act of receiving the Dharma.
So faith is something that um, that we do in this way. You know, this is how it evolves, and then we know in general what you know what we have faith in and what we don't need to have faith in anymore if we've come to our own understanding, right? There's also a, a, another sutta I want to describe that talks about five benefits of faith. You know, somebody says to the Buddha, what, what are the benefits of faith? And they're, they're similar, interestingly, to the benefits of giving. So, but um, they center around what happens when you have faith, actually. You know, what are, what's going to come to you if you develop this quality in the heart, which we all have in some way? So number one, it says... When the good people in the world show compassion, the word being anukampa, which means actually acting in the world, it says they first show compassion to the person with faith, not to the person without faith. And the notes to this sutta say that this refers to people offering others the chance for merit. So, for example, if you're a monastic, you would first approach the house, houses of people who you know to be faithful. You know, who know you know will um, are supportive of the monks, and so in a way, this is generous because they're giving those people the opportunity for merit to you know to give to the monastics. They might offer teachings also to such people, um, giving them therefore the chance at developing their heart and maybe reaching liberation. And then the other items on the list kind of draw this out. So. Um, when good people approach anyone, they first approach the person with faith. When they receive alms, they first do so from the person with faith. When they teach the Dhamma, they first teach the people with faith. And then again, after death, faith brings a good rebirth. And then there's a nice image given. It says, Just as at a crossroads on level ground, a great banyan tree becomes the resort for birds all around, so the layperson endowed with faith becomes the resort for many people, bhikkhus, bhikkhunis, male lay followers, and female lay followers. So what this sutta is drawing out is the what the quality of faith will attract into our lives. It's not neutral to do this. Uh, it has actual impact. And so we're definitely not talking about blind faith, but rather the teaching on causes and conditions. Um, you know, if... Faith is a quality of mind or heart that can be cultivated, and that has real effects in how our lives unfold. Generally being that we're going to receive uh, more opportunities because of it. So if we have faith in the teachings, or confidence, or trust, or conviction, then our practice will unfold differently from the case where we don't really have that heart connection to what we're doing. So, maybe I'll make a little aside there and say that it's not quite as simple as saying that we create our own future by wishing for things. You know, sometimes when people hear the teachings on the causes and conditions, they get the idea of, okay, I'll sit and uh, really intend for something to happen, and then it will. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. Um, sometimes it works that way, but... Um, I think that's more the control-oriented mind. This is instead a teaching that says there are 
causes and conditions. Um, there are real effects and beneficial ones from bringing in wholesome qualities like faith or generosity. They do have fruit, but they may, you know, we don't have complete control over how that unfolds. So that's one thing that we're distinguishing from is the sense of, okay, now, now I can guarantee certain results by having this. And then the other distinction is the other side, which is sometimes we're told uh, in practice, oh, don't expect anything. You, know, it's, you shouldn't expect any results. You should just practice and kind of let the whole thing happen. Uh, I remember there was once a monk teaching up at Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, and somebody said that to him. I think they were a Zen student. And they said, well, I've been told not to expect anything. That practice, you know, practice is just sort of endless and doesn't, we don't expect any result from it. And the monk looked at him and said, you should expect results. <laughs> so, you know, it's like it was obvious to him that if you bring about certain causes and conditions, there have to be effects from that. You don't, you know, you don't escape them. And also you don't escape the benefit of them. So can you see that there's a, a middle way here? You know, is that we cultivate things uh, because we know there will be good results from them, but we don't expect specific results. So the main point you know, of faith is that we bring it in, it will bring beneficial results, it will attract things to us that then further our practice. You know, faith has the effect of being onward leading. It, it leads us to get more teachings, it leads us to get more opportunities for merit, which then purifies our heart more and helps our practice, helps us see more clearly. Everything gets supported by it, it's the, really the foundation. How does the process work? Well, according to the context of the five faculties, faith will unfold into energy or effort. And that makes sense. Um, in order to put forth effort, we have to believe in something at some level, conscious or unconscious. We don't generally do things for absolutely no reason. And so at some level, we are doing something that we think is going to be helpful. We could be confused about that, you know, like in the cases where we do things and we know they're not actually helpful. Uh, but somehow, delusion has gotten in there or something. Um, but genuine faith, you know, we, we will put forth effort when we understand that something is going to lead in a good direction. We demonstrate that by, by acting on it. Maybe I'll um, maybe I'll stop there actually and have a reasonable concluding point and maybe just reiterate the point that the faith is not blind faith but it's it's a quality of heart that has real effects and so we bring it in and um, watch those results unfold but there does um, you know the the process is that faith is going to be replaced by knowledge over time like the way Siha had didn't have to have faith in the four qualities that he'd already seen from or benefits he'd already seen from generosity. So this this moves toward faith steps up through the qualities toward wisdom. Wisdom is the knowledge that we know uh, we know what's going to be good. We don't have to have have only faith. Although there's a little twist on that which we'll get to at the end of this series <laughs> in that uh, Wisdom isn't the end. So 
All right. So does anybody have any comments or questions? Sure. What's the um, what's the motivation for the question? Just so I have some context. Um, it's a big topic, so I need a little help. <laughs> yeah. It, well, it, it, I was kind of contemplating that as you were talking about causes and effects, and it seemed like maybe. Well, often I think people kind of abuse the term karma to say that, like, I don't know, it's part of the jingling, maybe, and it's always bothers me, but anyway, I just try, I'm trying to understand what it means. Mm. Yeah, so I th- to pick up the, the, your point, I think karma has become a little bit uh, a word in our society, right? Is that people, many, many people may have heard that word, even if they don't really know where it comes from. And so, yes, it can be used, as you said, in the case of kind of blaming the victim, I guess, you know, that's, she she probably brought that on herself with her karma, or that's just her karma, or you know, even if, if people have even a little more knowledge of the teachings, they might say, you know, people who are not very wealthy had were, were greedy in their previous life, and so it's their karma to not have things come to them. More often, I think people use it in the sense of fate. If I may make that more general statement, you know, oh, it's my karma to always end up in relationships like this or it's my karma to you know have to deal with this particular situation in my family so these are kind of not quite what what the teaching points toward it's it's not meant at all to be um, a, a, a definite statement we can't say in any given case what all the causes and conditions that led to something are actually so one of the additions i'm talking around this i haven't yet told you what karma is which was your first question but hang on (laughs) so the um the other the other statement we get from the buddha about karma is that it's not possible to completely understand it and that if we try to with our little human consciousness we will go insane so the causes and conditions are very complex. Um, also, karma is not the only reason that things happen. There's a sutta where someone asserts that, and the Buddha says it's not true. There are actually other laws at play, but uh, karma is only one. It can be a reason for things to happen. So that's good to keep in mind also. However, karma is very powerful. Um, it's meant to be and explanation of how things work in the world of samsara. So in the world of living and dying and being a regular, ordinary human being, the mind, uh, the laws of the mind come through karma. So it's related to our intentions. So what the mind intends has a, then has a real effect. And we see this, for example, it's, it's built into the Eightfold Path, where intention is the second step, and after that comes speech, action, and livelihood, the results in the world of our intentions. So intention leads to action, action leads to result. 
that result is the next input for the next result, or the output of one thing becomes the input for the next, and there's this sense of things rolling along in a lawful way. Because these are the laws, you know, we understand law as, a, as most Westerners understand it in sort of a physical sense, like we know about gravity and we know about electromagnetism and we learned about science and mathematics and so that's what we think of with laws. There are these natural laws. And that's fine. The laws of physics are the laws for matter. They govern the world of form. The Buddha doesn't deny that there's physics, chemistry, biology, all those things. There's actually a teaching about all the different levels of laws. <laughs> and in the form world, the physical laws apply. Um, and in the world of the mind, in beings that are conscious and have intention, there is the law of karma that operates. And it affects um, the resulting mind state that happens as a result of you know, an intention and then follows another mind state. So this is actually enormously important in the practice, because this is a training of the mind, actually. That's where the freedom is. Freedom is not in the world of form, it's in the mind. And so, karma then becomes the first part of wise view. Wise view has two components. One is the understanding of karma, how, how intentions unfold. And the other is the understanding of the Four Noble Truths. So it's actually very important um, to start to see how things work. In fact, this is exactly what I pointed to at the very beginning of this talk. There's a lot of people out there acting in ways where it's clear that they don't understand how things work. <laughs> and we see this in our own lives, too. Um, so, the teachings on effort, on bringing forth skillful qualities and letting go of unskillful qualities, are all about karma. You know, what is it that helps a mind not fall into a state of depression, anger, fear? You know, what can I do to prevent that? Or, if that has already happened, I'm sitting here and I'm angry, what can I do to let go of that? Or if I'm wanting to cultivate generosity, how would I bring that about? What conditions are needed for me to act in a generous way? How can that intention come forth into action? Or if I'm feeling uh, calm and peaceful, how can that not be disrupted? How can I maintain a state like that? not uh, allow it to be, you know, what would I give up that peace for? So my teacher says, what would you give up your peace for? <laughs> it's kind of scary when we actually look at what we would give up our peace for. So these are teachings on understanding how the mind, how the mind states unfold, how the causes and conditions bring about happiness or bring about suffering. And that's the first fundamental um, way that we begin working in our practice with karma. Is that starting to help with your question? So it's not just fate. It's not just, um, you know, they must have done something wrong in the last lifetime. 
or whatever. Um, and we don't have total control over those causes and conditions, but we, we start to learn to work with them. And actually the intention to work with them, even the intention to want to develop something wholesome, even if we aren't actually doing it yet, is a very, very good intention, very powerful. So this is more like what was meant by karma, is beginning to work with, um, with our own mind, the conditions in our life. And we always start from where we are. And where we are is always, there's always a line from where we are toward liberation. We're never ever, we're never, ever stuck. There's never ever no way forward. That's the law of impermanence, actually. Is there any more to follow up on that? No. Okay. Yeah, I, I describe them as a sequence because they are kind of a sequence, but they definitely uh, inform each other and mutually build. Yeah. You look like you might have another question. I'm just trying to think about the, the uh, Eightfold Path and faith and how that might fit in or not fit in. Hmm. Um, I think to, to engage in the path, we would need to have some faith in karma, actually. I'm maybe allowed to tie together the two questions we've had. Somebody once, I'm remembering that someone once asked Tanishiro Bhikkhu, do you have to believe anything to be a Buddhist? And he said, you have to believe in cause and effect. It's true, right? If you don't believe that you can actually affect your mind and that what you do actually matters in terms of your own happiness, you wouldn't engage with this path. Because this path is all about developing the mind. <laughs> and so if we don't believe that's going to be effective, or that it matters, or that it's something we want to do, then I don't think we would engage. So I think having the faith in, in cause and effect, I think that was a good answer, Lady Kay. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.